Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly podcast, where you'll get the real rundown of what's going on in Scottish politics. We have the interviews, the gossip, and sometimes the laughs. So please join us. And remember, when anyone tells you they're not interested in politics, you tell them you know a podcast that can help them out with that. And you can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. So enjoy. Political leadership, or lack of, has been on my mind of late, and very much today. Last week, the First Minister took to Twitter in a blue-lit emergency video to talk about transphobia in the SNP. It felt quite the intervention. Unscripted and apparently not informed by the usual legions of special advisers. Believe that, if you will, but maybe I'm too cynical. Nicola Sturgeon looked into the camera, looking slightly exasperated. This on the day that the UK had passed a grotesque landmark of over 100,000 Covid deaths. It also happened to be International Holocaust Memorial Day, perhaps when people's minds may have been on much bigger things. And she said that some days, silence was not an option. So what grave event had happened to prompt this emergency intervention? Well, she said it was about young party members indicating they were leaving because of transphobia. But for those of us that have been keeping up, it was the culmination of years of increasingly febrile discourse stemming from, but not exclusively about, plans to reform the Gender Recognition Act. Years in which Sturgeon has, until now, said very little about the heat and fury inside our party and without, generated by the clear mishandling of proposed reforms to the GRA, which has so far resulted in two failed government consultations, opened a whole can of worms about a wider debate on the very fundamentals of what it is to be a woman, and sparked a furious and abusive debate pitting feminists against so-called trans allies, and which her leadership has done so little to quench. And yet her loyal ministerial team and associated coterie were quick to retweet her video address, applauding her leadership in addressing such levels of perceived bigotry within SNP ranks, yet no one seemed to look for the evidence. This is what leadership looks like, was the common refrain. But it is precisely because of her lack of leadership on this issue that now natural allies are tearing strips off each other. Young people no longer feel safe within a party that has put equality at its heart. And some women, feminists to their core, have felt abandoned while exposed to abject misogyny rooted in erroneous slurs for simply raising questions emanating from the wider debate. And this week, we saw further evidence of that god-awful mess with the sacking of Joanna Cherry from the SNP's front bench at Westminster. Cherry has been one of the most vocal politicians in the wider sex and gender debate and is pigeonholed as being anti-sturgeon, pro-salmond, anti-GRA and pro-women. But that is all far too simplistic. But at its heart is still the question of leadership and how a real leader should deal with competing views and competing egos in one party. And on this, I would say Nicola Sturgeon has failed. It may have been the Westminster leader that sacked Cherry from the front bench, but it will have been his boss, Nicola Sturgeon, who handed him the knife. And in the furore that followed, Miss Cherry has received death threats, not for the first time. She's one of the most abused female politicians on social media and a man was reported to the police and and she has been advised to go to a place of safety. Such a shame that that place of safety clearly isn't in her own party and the abuse was not deserving of another emergency statement from the First Minister, perhaps this time about the misogyny and the bullying within the SNP. Leadership requires building bridges and working with bright people who you might not personally like 
sacking one of your highest profile, intellectually curious, gay female politicians in a row over sex and gender is not a great look, particularly when it looks as if it might be fueled by petty spite and the sacking also leads to death threats to the person you've got rid of. Leadership means meeting criticism head on, bringing sides together and not simply acquiescing to claims of transphobia without first testing the evidence. Just because you happen to not like or feel threatened by one side of the debate or of the person that leads that charge. Leadership is a challenge and in politics, failing to show leadership can have devastating consequences for your wider party, causing internal strife that then overshadows everything else, as the Scottish Labour Party knows only too well. Loyalty, like respect, is earned, not simply there on demand. And on that note, we must turn to the Scottish Labour Party, where Anna Sarwar and Monica Lennon are competing against each other to be the party's 10th new leader since devolution. Last week on the podcast, I interviewed Anas about his approach, and given Labour's history of internecine warfare, I start by asking Monica what she's making of the SNP's leadership issues. So Monica, welcome to Politically Speaking, our podcast. I'm looking forward to exploring more about who Monica Lennon is other than the tampon lady. But first, I want to talk about leadership because obviously that's what we're going to be talking about anyway today. But given the headlines uh, in today's newspapers about the sacking of Joanna Cherry from the Westminster front bench, two things as a potential leader, how important is loyalty in a party? And do you think party should also be a place where you can debate policy issues freely without acrimony? Well, morning, Mandy. Thank you for, for having me on. Um, and yes, uh, the tampon lady, um, I think that's a name that's come from Holland Magazine, probably my own words coming back at me, but hopefully there's, there's more to me than that. Um, I haven't had a lot of time to to look at the, the detail and the running commentary of, of what's happened within the SNP in the last couple of days. I understand that Joanna Cherry has left the front bench. Has she, has she been sacked? Is that, is that accurate to say? Um, but yeah, I think. Sorry, Monica. I was just. I think. I think uh, initially, Joanna had put out a tweet saying that she'd been sacked from the front bench. Then there was a further announcement about a, a kind of mini reshuffle, really. But she's um, she's one of the I think three that are no longer in the front bench or have a spokesperson role. Sure. Okay. I understand. Um, yeah. I mean, there's obviously a lot of infighting going on within the SNP right now. Um, but in terms of your, your wider points, then absolutely it's, it's essential that we can have civilised and open debate, not just within political parties, but within the country. And, you know, we all have to deal with difficult issues and points of disagreement. And it does worry me that, that our politics is becoming increasingly a hostile environment and you know everyone has to have a perfect complete answer to every question and everything becomes a binary issue and real life is not like that and I do worry that you know people looking in at politics are really getting turned off because think is that for me Um, and it's becoming a less tolerant environment loyalty is important in, in parties you join a political party because you believe in the the values and mission of that party, um, you're comfortable with the policies, you won't always agree with everything. So loyalty to your party is important, um, but loyalty to your constituents um, and your beliefs is equally important. So there's always a lot to juggle and there's a lot to 
to, to balance. Um, in terms of what's happened within the, the SNP, folk might think it's a bit rich for a Scottish Labour politician to talk about infighting in, in other parties, but it looks to me that there's a number of factors at play. Um, on the one hand, you've got the, the issues, the legacy of the, the Salmond case and the ongoing inquiry. You've got tensions around a so-called you know, conflict between women's rights and, and trans rights, and of course, tensions around independence and the SNP's own campaign and approach to that and the timing of a possible referendum. So I think there's quite a lot at, at play. And um, what I did see last night on Twitter was that Joanna Cherry had put up a comment saying that she had received threats and that the police were involved and she was re reassuring people that she was in a safe place. And, you know, we're in a bad place in politics if that if that is the, the outcome of a bad day at the office, no one should receive threats of violence. No one should be fearful. No one should have to phone the, the police. So I think that's worrying. I think that's something that all political parties really have to look at closely and we all have to get our own houses in order. You touched on um, the issues, I guess the associated issues, if you like, Monica, that have emanated from the whole debate around reform of the Gender Recognition Act. And, you know, I'm sitting in a seat where I've, interviewed um, Andy Whiteman after he resigned. Jo Joanna Cherry's issues clearly stem from that as well within your own party. I mean, do you, do you feel that it's almost like there for the grace of God? Because clearly there are lots of issues. This is a nuanced debate and yet it's trying to be black and white, um, but you're all going to face it. Yeah, I mean, I'm alive to the debate, Mandy, and I think... Over the last couple of years, I think that there's been a space, um, there's been a vacuum, rather. There's been a vacuum because I think politicians have have failed to, to lead the debate and to analyse the issues in a, in a calm and rational way. Um, and I'm not blaming campaigners who then come on social media and lobby politicians and do that sometimes in a very... Um, colourful way let's just say and you can see sometimes there's, there's bad behaviour on all sides of the debate but I think fundamentally what we're trying to do in Scotland is to make sure that our legislation is fit for purpose is fit for the times that we live in we're trying to build a country I think collectively I think everyone would agree we all want Scotland to be a fairer more inclusive country how do we go about that and I think what we have to do is strip out some of the uh, you know, the nonsense that you hear which would portray all trans people as predators or or dangerous people um, or people who are pretending to be trans just to, to hurt women on the one hand that's an extreme view um, that, that you hear and on the other hand you do um, hear women um, you know being verbally slapped down and sometimes there have been physical threats for daring to have an opinion. So that's not a healthy place for anyone to be in. But I can only speak about my experience as an MSP in the region, dealing with casework over the last almost five years. And in my experience, trans men, trans women, non-binary people are some of the most marginalised people in society. And they're frightened and they've become more frightened um, and, I, and I really worry about that because I, I feel in our 
politics, we should be generous and kind, and we should be creating space to have discussions for those people who feel that they are on the margins of society. But I also have strong strong views as a woman, as a woman in politics, um, a woman in the public eye, um, and I know what it's like to be a woman, and I know that I experience, like, the majority of women, even when they don't know what's happening to them, we experience everyday sexism and misogyny, and sometimes it really goes over the line, and it strays into sexual harassment and more, and, you know, I've, I have that lived experience, so I'm not in any way naive about people's concerns, and I would never dismiss them, but we need to get to a point where we understand people's fears and anxieties and we try and take um, those concerns out by bringing people together. It's about ba- it's about having people in the same room. It's not easy to do during the pandemic, um, and that probably hasn't helped. Um, but we could have done much more in our parliament to bring people together with different opinions for events in parliament. What I've seen in the last couple of years is people who already have a fixed view just speaking to people who agree with them, and I think that's made things more polarising. Well, I mean, as you know, I, I wrongly assumed you were going to vote against Joanne Lament, Lamont's amendment, um, you know, which got the hashtag six little words, changing the word gender to sex in the forensic examination bill. Uh, and I apologise for getting that wrong. Um, were you surprised at what happened with Andy Whiteman and the fact he then talked about the fact that the Green Party of all parties didn't seem to be a party where you could just talk about these issues, never mind debate them. Well, Andy Whiteman is someone that I have a huge amount of respect for. Um, I don't know if MSPs are supposed to have favourite MSPs, particularly ones in other parties, but, you know, Andy Whiteman is a fantastic parliamentarian and I've worked with Andy on, on committees where he is forensic in his approach to scrutinising legislation. He wants good legislation. Um, so Andy is a massive loss to, to the Green Party, and I don't know what's going to happen. None of us know um, what the electorate will decide, but you know, Andy's the kind of person that you want to have in the parliament, and I hope that that, that, that can happen. Um, it's not really fair for me to comment on other parties' internal processes because we can talk a bit about mine. Um, I'm standing to be leader because I, I want to improve the Labour Party in everything that we do. Um, but in terms of the, the Greens, um, you know, I, I listened to what Andy was raising and, and how he felt that he felt almost like threatened um, if, if he didn't. Um, just go with the whip and that's to, to, up until now that's not been my experience of the Scottish Greens when I, I do have negotiations with obviously other parties when it comes to votes and certainly when it's Labour business and it's a motion in my name and I always got the impression there was a lot of consensus within that group um, so I think it's unfortunate what happened um, I think Andy is a good person is a fair person I know he's very committed to human rights um, so, yeah, I think it's unfortunate what happens. And we will move on to your leadership, I promise. It's just to get a feeling of who you are. And at the moment, this debate is so toxic and it seems to be infiltrating so many other discussions. So I suppose I just want to end on it by saying, do you think sex and gender are two different things and how important is it to policymaking that we make that distinction? Yeah, well, if I can give you some insight mandy when i was working on the period 
product bill so obviously you know about that campaign and you've just had a fantastic event bringing people together from around Scotland and beyond to talk about period dignity so we've got a lot to celebrate in Scotland but if I'm being really honest um, I got a lot of not a lot but I got some stick from some colleagues within the Labour Party who didn't call me a traitor but I got a hard time for not having the word woman or girl on the face of the bill and I tried to explain, well, this is because this is about creating a scheme that is easy to access. Anyone who needs a product can access them and you can send someone on your behalf. So if your local scheme is that you go to the local um, health clinic or, you know, library, whatever it is for you, you can send your, your husband, your son, your carer, whoever, to get the product. And I was also pointing out to colleagues, and of course, um, some trans men and non-binary people menstruate too and I was the reaction to that was one of disbelief so it struck me oh we need a bit of education on this issue it's not to to to, to laugh at people or think badly of them because they don't understand it that other people who don't identify as women and girls can, can menstruate but that was just in the last couple of years and um this is people at a high level in politics so so I hope what I've shown with that that piece of legislation is that it's not about erasing the identity of women um, to appear to be woke, I think is a term that, that is used, um, um, or to try and be politically correct, is to create good legislation um, that you know creates a system that's based on dignity and you future-proof the legislation and the schemes are then... Um, reflective of, of people's needs so that that became a, a talking point and a point of tension within the Labour Party and I was just trying to show I'm just trying to make this accessible for everyone in Scotland who needs these products so that's how the bill proceeded and I think that's absolutely fine I mean I talk about the bill and the, the issue I talk about women and girls and, and people who menstruate and I think that's an inclusive um, way forward I also set up the cross-party group on women's health and that was an extension of the period products campaign because, you know, there's more to menstruation than just pads and tampons. Um, like you, Mandy, I've done a fair bit of work on, on menopause, but there's a whole range of women's health issues where because, um, you know, women have just not mattered enough in society, there's just too little research, not enough data. And conditions like endometriosis is one example. It takes around eight years just to get a diagnosis because women are not believed. Um, even when you know you've got doctors in, in, in medical school, there's very little time spent, you know, learning about women's bodies. So I'm very alive to, to all of these issues, and I want to improve the lives of, of women across Scotland but I also want to, to get it right for trans people too. And I don't think that in any way, by being inclusive of trans people, that that's a betrayal um, of women. So I, I just think that we need to change the terms of the debate to, to shine a light on people's lived experiences. Um, but tonight I'm speaking at a hustings for the, the British Heart Foundation. It's a cross-party hustings. It's about their manifesto commitments. And I've done a huge amount of work with British Heart Foundation on women's heart health. Um, and I think you, you probably know of the book, Invisible Women. There's just so much in our society that we need to fix. Um, even right now, in terms of PPE on the front line, you know, we've got women who are going out 
to work as, as doctors and, and nurses and COVID environments and the, the, the PPE they're given doesn't fit their bodies properly, the face masks don't fit properly and it leaves gaps because the, the, the PPE's been designed to fit the average male body. So these are issues that need to be addressed. I think that's why we need to have more women in leadership roles in politics but across the board, in the NHS, in science, in manufacturing, I think that's how we start to really pick up the pace and create that more equal Scotland that we all want to live in. I think it's really interesting, Monica, because I suppose over the years I've spoken to a lot of women politicians, um, Harriet Harman being one of them, who told me that when they've come into politics, perhaps in a different time, they didn't campaign on women's issues despite being women because they didn't want to be pigeonholed. And it's almost as if we're kind of coming of age that women politicians now feel that, yes, I need to be able to campaign on issues that matter to women. Yes, Um I was advised by a male MSP when I was a candidate for the Scottish Parliament election 2016 um, to be careful not to talk about women's issues too much. So I didn't really take that take that advice, did I? But, you know, that, that was the thing that really motivated me with the period products campaign. It's like, this is not radical. Why are we still having to fight to have easy access to pads and tampons and toilets alongside toilet paper. Why do we expect women and people who menstruate to walk about with emergency pads and tampons at all times? Um, and when I was being told initially by the Scottish government, oh, we need research, we need evidence, it'll cost too much, it's too difficult. I just thought women have been fighting this for, I mean, it wasn't me who created the campaign. It wasn't me who, you know, discovered that, that period poverty was an issue. It's been an issue for a long, long time and it's getting worse. That's why I really had to pick up the ball in the Scottish Parliament. Um, but when women are told to be nice and quiet and patient and not be too disruptive, then we just get more of the same. And I don't know about you, Mandy, but I'm so tired of that. Um, and there's so many battles in society that we do need to fix that you know, we've got to stamp out sexism. We've really got to fight for equality because it's not handed down and it's not enough just to have a woman first minister or a woman prime minister or women leading parties. The, the equality doesn't just trickle down. We've got to fight for that at a grassroots level. And to me, the big lesson of the last few years in Parliament is that we have to empower people in their own lives, in their own communities, in their own workplaces in their own schools and colleges and universities to have the courage to ask for more. Don't just settle for what you're being given. And I think having organised campaigns, people being part of a trade union, this sort of collectivism is really, really important. And for me, the, the biggest buzz that I get out of the period products campaign is that it was really driven by young women and girls. And I didn't want them to come away thinking we put our heart into that and we didn't get a win. So, you know, I had to get a win for them. You know, this was their first experience of politics and of lobbying parliament. And, you know, it's just something that's going to live with me forever. I've met the most inspiring young women who are so articulate and insightful and they know how they want the world to be, um, but they just don't always get the opportunity. And if they speak out too much, they're told that they're too bossy or too ambitious or not a nice woman or girl. So we need to change that. 
it's good being a, not a nice girl. <laughs> I um, I mean, I suppose you're naughtier than I am, Mandy. <laughs> well, let's not go into our naughty things. Um, it's not running through a field anyway of hay. Um, I, I guess the thing that fascinated me about the period campaign was, uh, and you know. I'm a good nearly 20 years older than you, Monica, and that, you know, I'm at another stage, so I'll be, well, as you know, I've been campaigning around the menopause, but I look back and I was campaigning, I think probably my first political involvement was campaigning to get rid of VAT on period products uh, back when I was at university, and obviously that wasn't yesterday. So I couldn't believe that still there were so many taboos around this. It's incredible, isn't it? Um, I was reading, I think it was in Emma Barnett's book about periods and she relays the story when Labour and government were cutting the VAT and it was quite um, a substantial announcement and apparently, as according to the book, I'm going to upset Gordon Brown again, but apparently Gordon Brown didn't feel comfortable saying tampon in the announcement. Um, so that bit just wasn't mentioned. And again... It's like there's so many occasions where the voices of women and the achievements of women are just airbrushed away and they're not really written down um, as part of our oral history. So there's so many, um, you know, I can think of Labour women like Harriet Harman, like Paula Sheriff um, on our benches who have been flying the flag on this. But at the end of the day, in the Scottish Parliament, this was a success because there was cross-party support that support, yes, it came from the Greens and the Lib Dems. I didn't really have to, to fight for that. They were just up for it on day one. Um, but getting the the backing of the Scottish Conservatives was a real game changer. Um, and I'm grateful to some of the, the Tory women at a grassroots level who were fighting for that. But huge credit to Jackson Carlaw, who enthusiastically backed it, the campaign and women like Jilly Martin on the SNP benches, but women for independence at a grassroots level who had been doing donation drives, um, even you know during the referendum years, you know people have just been so acutely aware that, that poverty has been increasing. So, you know, it really has been a, a cross-party effort, and I'm just proud to have been driving that. But, but yeah, as you say, some of these battles are. Um, I don't want to say, to say old, because you're definitely not old, um, Mandy, but, you know, for, for decades, women have been fighting these causes, uh, and it's tiring. It is tiring. Um, so hopefully this is a, an example of how you can run a campaign in a relatively short space of time and get a result, and then next time we go with a difficult issue to any government, then we can say, well... You know, we've shown it can be done. So I, I hope that this is a template. I mean, Aileen, and Ka Aileen Campbell and I, you know, certainly last year during the pandemic, we both agreed that this just had to be done. And Aileen, as you know, is standing down um, at the young age of 40, standing down from, from government and not standing in the election. And the two of us just decided, you know, we don't know what's going to happen at the next election. You know, we can't afford... Um, for all this good work to be lost because as you know a lot of the provision has been rolled out already in schools and colleges and universities we need to get the community rollout in place but the bill now has royal assent it's an act of parliament so i'm really proud that aileen and i worked together to, to get the bill over the finishing line and you know for children all parents are embarrassing 
your daughter is a teenager. I just wonder what she's made of this campaign. Has she been proud of you or was slightly embarrassed? Probably a bit of both. My daughter is 14, so everything's embarrassing when you're 14. And yeah, she you know, she's not a political geek by by any means, but she takes an interest and she has her own opinions. Um, you know, I, I'm proud that I have a, a daughter who is confident in her own opinions, although just got her report card out and I was amazed to hear them say she's just too quiet in class and doesn't speak out enough. So, but again, I think that's when you're put into different classes and maybe your pals are not there and you don't want to show that you're, again, girls that want to show that they're too clever and know the answers. Um, so not not a lot has probably changed, but but yeah, I think in her own way, she's, she's proud. I mean, she came to Parliament for stage one, of the period products bill so we had a big rally at, at parliament i think she was more glad to get a day off school but i said it's, it's, it's educational but she came to parliament that day she was in the public gallery when the bill was passed at stage one and i think that was probably a special moment so i'm, I'm hoping that she'll have that to look back on in years to come i think what she she enjoyed more was um and i'm not cool enough to be on tiktok and i'm on instagram but i don't really use it well but Apparently there were some celebrities and, and cool people outside of politics who were talking about the, the bill when it was passed. So I think her and her pals were quite excited about that. And uh, yeah, so hopefully, but yeah, I try and keep her, um, you know, out of the public eye. Um, I remember one time some troll on, on Twitter um, to make a, a horrible point, it was something, you know, used at a photo of me and my daughter from, from years ago. I don't think I was even an MSP at the time, and, and that really freaked me out um, because, you know, you don't want your children popping up on social media, especially when there's lots of creeps around. So so I think it's just something that I'm mindful of and, you know, just try and, and keep my family life as private as possible. However, you've, you have been very open about your emotions and, um, you know, particularly when you've talked about your own relationship with your father and his battles. Have you ever worried about opening up too much um, because it can cause pain? Yes. Um, yeah, it's not, it's not comfortable, but I suppose my approach to, to politics is just to, to be myself and, and just try and be open and honest and I've found on various campaigns when I'm speaking to constituents and other people who reach out for support if you can show some understanding and some empathy and some shared lived experience um, it's a good way to build trust um, it's a good way to break down barriers and to tackle stigma so it's not been a deliberate strategy but I suppose it just comes natural and you know, you can't really separate politics from, from the personal. You know, my experience growing up um, in terms of my family, my community, living in a working-class area where family was, was was a big deal. A lot of my family lived, you know, within a few blocks. Some of us were in the same street. So I, I lived in a really close-knit community. Um, and, of course, back then... Labour was dominant, everyone voted Labour, um, or it felt like it, but certainly all of our politicians were, were Labour. Um, so yeah, I've, I've talked about my dad, and the reason why I did that a couple of years ago was in my spokesperson role at the time, I was, I was constantly being asked to, 
to comment on statistics about alcohol, drug deaths, drug uh, alcohol and drug related deaths, and and hospital admissions and so on. And it was just becoming difficult to just constantly comment on numbers on a page and it just felt to me that we're, we're doing this wrong you know we're, we're not telling the story of of the humans behind these dreadful dreadful statistics and when you've gone through the trauma of substance misuse and addiction that is a very dehuman dehumanizing process people lose their identity families feel they can't talk about things and I just thought we have to to normalize this so I was trying to push back on this, you know, constant, you know, floods of figures. And it's like, can we just talk about the people behind these stories? Now, of course, if people don't want to share their story and talk about their lived experience, that is absolutely fine. And I, and I respect that. But I just felt that maybe it would make a difference if we had people in Parliament talking about it more openly and really trying to get it up the agenda. Um I think it's been effective. I think it's made a positive contribution. That's not just my own view. That's what people in the recovery community tell me. And I've worked really hard to build up those relationships and to try and change Scottish Labour policy from within because it's not enough to stand up and just critique the SNP government or the Tory government. I felt disappointed that the Scottish Labour 2016 manifesto didn't really say enough law about tackling and reducing alcohol and drug-related harms and try to deal with the underlying issues. Um, maybe, I don't know, I wasn't around to write the manifesto, but maybe we just were a bit, a bit afraid to tackle issues that we feel maybe are divisive um, and, and not priority issues for the electorate. But again, it's what does the Labour Party stand for? You know, we need to be the party that is serious about tackling social injustice in all its forums and addiction can affect anybody you know you can be a millionaire you can be from any background in any walk of life but it disproportionately affects the poorest in our society and that's what we need to to change so so yeah um, I do get emotional sometimes Mandy um I haven't cried today so far so that's good <laughs> I think every time we have a discussion one of us ends up crying Monica. <laughs> Um, you, you touched on that kind of very, that core question. What does the Labour Party stand for? And I think, you know, I can go back to Jim Murphy saying to me back in 2011, I think there'd been yet another review going on about why the Labour Party had done so badly. And people couldn't answer that question. What does the Labour Party stand for? What does it stand for? Well, if I become leader, I've said that my central mission is to end child poverty and to do that within a decade. So the Scottish Labour Party is the party that wants to end child poverty. That will be our overarching mission. Um, I want us to return to being the party for, for working people. That is what we were created for. Um, and it saddens me that many, many people... Um, from working class communities have turned away from Labour because they don't believe that we're the party for them. So I don't think that we need another review to tell us that. I think people have tried to be clever and overthink things. We just need to focus relentlessly on ending child poverty and to give people dignity in work, to give people dignity in old age, 
to close the poverty-related attainment gap. So we need to give people security in their lives. Um, we don't need to define ourselves on constitutional lines, although I'm happy to be involved in that debate and to talk about that. I'm sure you might ask in a moment, but we need to get back to a core mission, which is about lifting children out of poverty. And we've just, when we're in government, you know, I'm so proud, you know, when Labour's in government, we do amazing things. We've changed the lives of millions of people, but we're just not in government enough. And I'm sick and tired of losing. I'm sick and tired of factionalism within the Labour Party. And too often, it maybe goes back to your initial questions actually about Joanna Cherry, where it becomes about personality, becomes about egos, and that's not having a go at Joanna, but talking about the so-called big beast in the SNP, the, the Labour Party in Scotland has become disconnected from communities, and as a party, we've not listened to our grassroots members, and many of them have left, um, and, you know, voters have been teaching us a lesson now for a long, long time. So the centre of the Labour Party isn't a group of MSPs at Holyrood, and the focus needs to change. So the Scottish Labour Party needs to become more grounded um, and more rooted in people's lived experiences. We've become a party of political commentators where we spend a lot of time describing problems, telling people what they need and, and what should be happening in their lives rather than actually listening. We're not actively listening to people. And that's a really simple, basic point but that's something that I keep seeing over and over in this campaign is that we need to actively listen because there are many, many people who feel that Scottish Labour politicians spend more time fighting each other rather than fighting for them, rather than fighting for social justice, rather than fighting to end inequality. Um, and that's the perception of many people because when, when we ask them, when they're polled, when we do focus groups, people like Scottish Labour's policies but they just don't like Scottish Labour enough. So we have a, a brand that is damaged. Some might say toxic, and that's what I want to change. I mean, one of the issues has been that there's this constant infighting, and I guess what we're seeing in the SNP right now is um, the loyalty that had been their secret, if you like, uh, of success breaking down. Now, you've had so many leaders... And I guess Richard was a leader that was rooted in all the things that you're saying, but he faced such a hard time. I mean, was he ever going to succeed, do you think? Well, you know, when Richard stood down, he gave his reasons, and I think he had reached the right conclusion. There was ongoing speculation about Richard's leadership and, and whether he was the right person to, to lead the party forward obviously the timing is not ideal mandy i think absolutely richard is someone who is committed to ending poverty is committed to giving people dignity is committed to making scotland a fairer country no one could pick holes in, in, in richard's values and richard's commitment and loyalty to the labor party and the wider trade union movement um, but I think Richard did struggle to make the connections that we need to make. Um, I think at times there was maybe too much 
focus on internal stakeholders, if I can put it that way. And possibly that was because of infighting and of tensions and feeling, you know, having to, to try and keep people on board. But I think because of that, Richard wasn't out there enough. And I'm talking about even in pre-COVID times, wasn't out there enough speaking to the people who need to be persuaded. So my, you know, and even if an ass wins, my, my plea is that we have to stop talking to ourselves. We have to go out there and hear difficult things, hear difficult conversations and, and build wider coalitions in, in the country. We can't just assume when we're talking to people that everyone's in a trade union. Most people are not. So we've got to reach out um, to all those communities. And for me, you know, you have to look at the numbers here the vast majority of people who've turned away from Labour um, have gone to the SNP. And what is that telling us? And I've got a lot of colleagues who are quite dismissive of that and feel, well, they'll never come back because they're just so angry with the SNP because, you know, we've struggled election after election. And I know that, that colleagues feel very bruised about that and very bitter about that. But we need to turn our anger away from the SNP and turn our anger on the real divides in this country around wealth inequalities, health inequalities. And we need to work with people in their own communities to change that, to find out what they need in their own life. So my approach, you probably noticed, is to be very outward focused, um, to not shy away from doing media and doing interviews and, and to really try and get a positive message out from the Labour Party to show that, that we are a modern party. I want us to be a party that's fit for the 2020s. We've got a lot of work to do, but I think in recent years we've spent too much time talking about Labour history, looking over our shoulder, you know, celebrating some of the, the heroes of our past, which we should always do, but we don't do enough to talk up current achievements, whether that's Labour councillors who are doing fantastic work, Labour candidates and activists, but even our own Labour MSPs. You know, people often say, oh, we don't hear enough from Scottish Labour MSPs, and it saddens me because there's some fantastic work going on um, across the group. You know, Polly McNeil's been excellent on, on housing, um, Claire Baker's been doing some fantastic work with the creative industry um, and, I, and I heard her on the radio the other day actually and she was referred to as Dr Claire Baker and I thought actually again she's very rarely referred to as Dr Claire Baker but when I heard that I thought well that gives Claire you know this authority that she doesn't usually have so again I think the SNP have been really good at making a virtue out of Emma Harper's a nurse, Claire Hawkey was a mental health nurse, Jenny Gilruff was a teacher, and that becomes part of their identity that shows some connection and empathy with the public, whereas in Scottish Labour, we don't really do that. You know, okay, I'm a town planner, it's not the sexiest of jobs, but even speaking to party members in the last couple of weeks, they were like, oh, we thought you had just been a politician. You know, we were told you didn't have a lot of experience. So again, women's achievements, women's careers get kind of just brushed aside. 
A lot of that's going to come down to leadership and your style of leadership. I mean, when when you look back, and I know this upset you at the time, but when you look back and Richard was faced with Kezia, his, pre, his um, predecessor, going off to the jungle without asking him. Um, then there was a lot of infighting in party groups, people crying, very upsetting. How will you make your mark as leader? And, and how would you have dealt with those issues at the beginning had that been you? I think the biggest lesson from the last few years is communication. Um, I would say the same under Richard's term and Kezia's term, where if people feel that they're not included, if people feel that they're in the dark, if people feel that there's little cliques operating, that's when people's imagination runs wild um, and paranoia can, can set in. And, you know, maybe I've been guilty of that too. It's, it's not been a pleasant environment. There's no point in trying to sugarcoat it. Um, it. It has been tough. And if you're dealing with personal issues in your own life as well, family illnesses and so on, it can be really hard to, to keep going. So for me, there has to be much better communication we're a small group at the moment. Obviously, I want us to increase, but it shouldn't be too difficult to genuinely have that open door policy to be able to pick up the phone proactively or to answer answer calls. So the culture needs to change. We need to have a much more supportive environment. Um, I've always felt that we go through the motions each week where you, know, you do FMQs, you get through a debate, um, and we never reflect on did that go well? We don't really say thank you to colleagues or say, you know, to an MSP colleague, that was excellent. You know, you made excellent points. What We didn't win today. We didn't get that motion through, but we won the argument. You know, we just don't have that kind of conversation. And it just strikes me that in successful organisations, not just in the corporate world, but there's lessons from the third sector too, where you just have to have a culture of improvement where you're constantly testing yourself, evaluating, you know, having that peer-to-peer review. So we need to we need to inject that into our culture. It's just not I've just not witnessed that in Scottish Labour in, in the last few years. I'm not pretending that that everyone's going to be pals and, and and love each other, but if we can get people buying into the mission, you know, which I'm saying should be ending child poverty, then everybody has to play a part. And I don't really feel when you're running a relatively small group that you have this hierarchy of, oh, you're in the shadow cabinet and you're not. Everybody has to play a full part. And I think also it's about reaching out beyond the MSP group. Richard had one councillor in his shadow cabinet. I think we could benefit from having more than one. So we have the diversity of Scotland in terms of our geography and also some gender balance to ha- to have a better a better mix of people. So you know, I'm not under any illusion that one person can sprinkle magic and and transform an organisation. Um, it's a bit boring for for your listeners, but we've also got a lot of work to do within the party headquarters to to get more staff and more resources and to to give support to those staff who've been working in difficult times. There's been a, again changes at at the top. Um, but we have an election to fight, so we need to be election ready. I mean, you've got an election in three months, um, Monica, if you become leader, uh, and we haven't even touched on independence. <laughs> so two things. Do you think you're going to be able to swap a tampon lady for first minister? 
And secondly, do you feel time's running out for you to make the argument for the union? So the election's going to be tough, Mandy. I'm not going to make any predictions. What I've said to, to party members at the recent hustings is I'm, I'm making a long-term commitment. You know, we want to support all our candidates in the regions and in the constituencies. I think there's a lot to play for, but my goal is to be Scottish Labour's first minister. And I think when Nicola Sturgeon and I are sharing a billing in Vogue magazine, um, you know, it's maybe not that far-fetched um, after all um, that, that one day that, that, that could happen. Um, what was the other part of your question? Was that one independence, Mandy? <laughs> Best ignored, probably. No, yes. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah, independent. I mean, do you feel time is running out um, for, for Labour to make the argument for the union? Do you think independence might well just happen? No, I don't think time is running out. I don't think independence is inevitable. But what I would say is the status quo isn't tenable. That's why I'm being really open and honest and I'm saying to people, I'm not going to go about the country telling people that they're silly or irresponsible um, because they want to talk about the constitution. Um, I'm not going to tell them that they can never have another referendum. I'm not going to use the sound bites from 2014 to tackle issues in 2021. Um, so I'm clear that I don't believe in independence. I don't want another referendum. I'm not going to be agitating for one. But if Scottish Labour, and I know some colleagues want us to do this, want us to talk about everything else and talk around the constitution, I just think that there's no future for us in that. It's still a big dividing line in the country. It's still a, a concern for people who, who are curious about what is Scotland's future relationship within the, the UK and yes, there are people who would want independence tomorrow, regardless of the pandemic, and I think that's that's wrong. And there's people on the other side who are hardline unionists and want things to stay the same. In fact, there's some people who would even want to abolish the Scottish Parliament. So we don't want to be focusing on the extreme ends of the spectrum. I think there's a lot of people in the middle who don't have a strong view either way, just want their lives to be better, their families' lives to be better, and they understand that that might involve the Scottish Parliament having more powers over issues like drug law, employment law, but they also want to see the Scottish Parliament doing its job properly. So using the powers that we do have fully, progressively, and making sure that resources in our country are shared more fairly. Um, we don't want to recover from COVID in a way that just takes us back to how life was in 2019 when our country was really unfair. So it goes back to what I said, Mandy, about actively listening. I want to listen to all those voters that have been turned off by Scottish Labour because of our tone and our language on the constitution. Um, there are some people who voted Tory as well because they think that we're, that we're too soft. But even in the last couple of days, I've had people... Um, again on social media so it's not serious but people calling me a traitor and why don't you just join the SNP you know it's just ridiculous I don't believe in independence I would never join the SNP I would never join any other political party but I believe in democracy I believe in, in Scotland's right to self-determination I believe that the people of Scotland are sovereign and I don't think it's right that Boris Johnson or any other prime minister 
can tell people in Scotland if they want one, and we don't know yet if they do, but if people in Scotland want a referendum, that should be for people in Scotland to decide, not any Prime Minister. And that's my message to both Keir Starmer and to Boris Johnson. And if there was a referendum, can you see any reason why Labour would uh, campaign again for the union with the Tories? I think Scottish Labour needs to make a positive case for remaining in the union. But to reform the union, that's why I am very open to and, and believe that having another question around Devo Max is, is, is the right direction to go in. For the reasons that I've said out, I don't think we can just sit back and say, well, we don't want this, so we're just going to leave it to the SNP to lead the independence argument and the Tories to lead the pro-union argument. Then Scottish Labour gets squeezed out. So I think if we become clearer about what we stand for as a party, and I've covered that with you earlier on, you know, what really fires us up and, and the change we want to see in the country, I think for too long people have felt that that we've not been strong enough in standing up for Scotland's interests. So we need to understand why people feel that way. We need to change that. Um, I think Scottish Labour has been has been too negative, but we, can, we can't just keep going back to, to 2014 and telling people, you've had your referendum, move on. I know Anastasia is saying we, we have to rule it out for five years and the next parliament has to be a COVID recovery parliament. I think everyone agrees that getting through COVID and recovering from COVID is the priority. I don't think anyone is disagreeing with that, but I think we have to accept that people are also... Um, mature enough and capable enough to also talk about other issues that matter to them and for many people they do have strong views and unanswered questions on the constitution so let's be part of the debate it doesn't have to be front and center but let's be part of the debate in a positive engaging way and I suppose finally, Monica, you know, this is all about, um, a lot of this is rooted in tribalism, but would anybody be particularly surprised at a friendship you've forged across party lines while you've been in Parliament? Would anyone be surprised by a friendship? Yeah. Have you, for instance, have you made a friend on the Tory benches or the SNP benches? Have you been surprised that actually when people get together... Once they're out of the chamber, they can talk and be friends, never mind the political party they belong to. Oh, I mean, I think that there's always been those cross-party friendships. And I, I read recently a piece by my colleague Elaine Smith, and I think a number of outgoing 99ers had been interviewed. And I think there was a feeling that in the early days of the Scottish Parliament, people were more likely to make those friendships. Um, I, I mean, there's, there's people that I, just, I really like as, as people. I think Gail Ross from the SNP is lovely. And Gail and I, we've, we've cried together at exhibitions in Parliament. The two of us are a pair of greeters. But, um, you know, I think, I think Kate Forbes is, is lovely as well. I think for those of us who come into Parliament at the same time, again, there's... There's a bit of solidarity there. Um, I say Andy Whiteman and Alison Johnson have been fantastic. Um, Alex Cole Hamilton is always so supportive. Um, I think Willie Rennie said some nice things about me when I when I entered the Parliament. So I've worked with all the colleagues, and again on the the, the Tory benches, um, I would say in particular Miles Briggs and I have had you know really good conversations about about addiction, substance misuse, and we don't always you know, arrive at the same conclusion. But, you know, I recognise that people in other parties 
do care. They're not heartless. I think Annie Wells has had a, an awful amount of abuse um, because she's a woman, because she's a lesbian in politics, and because she's a Tory. Um, but again, Annie Annie's a lovely person. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's been hard, I suppose, the last you know, year, isn't it, where you just feel you don't, you don't see anybody, there's no socialising, but um, I, I do value being able to to have friendships um, with people in, in other parties. Um, maybe if I'd made more friendships in my own party, uh, Mandy, I would have had more nominations from, from the MSP benches, but, you know, I, I've come in to focus on, um, you know, not collecting future nominations for a leadership contest, but to to go in and get the work done. And I think, you know, that's where even if, if colleagues don't particularly like me, I think the respect that, that I go in and I, I do the work um, and I care deeply about the issues, about people, and that's maybe why I do get a wee bit emotional sometimes. But um, again, just to, to go back, because we've talked a lot about fighting in politics, I, I can think of plenty of times where there has been robust debate and, and argument in, in, in Labour groups, but I think most people know when to leave that behind and know that it's not personal. You know, we should be able to have those debates and then leave it behind. And, you know, that's happened many times with, with, with colleagues. Um, and during this campaign, it's funny, we were joking about it last night, but I think Anasarwa and I have spoke to each other more in the last couple of weeks than we have in, in a lifetime because we're going through this together. Um, and the two of us are tired, you know, we're working long days, we're dealing with a bizarre situation where we're, you know, launching a campaign over Zoom and things like that. So... Again, it's sometimes that there's just more agreement um, and people have more in common than, than some people would want to admit. So that, that makes me optimistic. I think, I think COVID has brought people closer together and I think we have seen um, more teamwork. We've seen that within the Labour group and I think Jackie Bailey has actually been instrumental in bringing people together. Actually, Jackie and Elaine, two women who might be seen as politically different, but behind the scenes Jackie and Elaine have been bringing people together um getting us into better shape and again I think there's something about when women are in charge you know stuff gets done so um there's maybe a lesson in that as the editor of Hollywood magazine I've been interviewing political leaders for the best part of 20 years and I'm not sure what makes a leader a leader, but obviously Annas and Monica are very different characters. Monica's much more openly uh, emotional about things and Annas perhaps a bit more reserved, but they're both driven and they'll both bring different things. I guess my one thing that I would say is that while politicians are frightened of showing their feelings or showing their emotions and have sometimes felt quite brittle, the electorate actually like a human being. As someone much greater than I said, a week is a very long time in politics. And believe me, I know Scottish politics is never boring. So don't leave it long. Make sure you come back and join us on Politically Speaking. And remember that you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And do tell your friends because everybody has an interest in politics.